Eyewitness News. Be there as it happens. City News. It's 17.30 GMT. This is Eyewitness News on 97.3 CTFM. I am Umaru Sanda Amadou. Tonight, I'm here with... Akosia Ofenwa Opoku. And coming up over the next 90 minutes. The committee unanimously agreed to recommend him to the House for approval. Parliament's Appointments Committee recommends by unanimous decision for Kisie Jabin to be approved as the country's second ever special prosecutor. We'll be hearing more of what transpired at today's setting and the reasoning behind the committee's decision. Also coming up, University Teachers Association of Ghana, UTAC, to begin a strike action from Monday, August 2, over what it calls government's failure to address worsening conditions. We'll be hearing what the consequences are. And later on Eyewitness News, the High Court in Accra has ordered the government to stop collecting your personal data in Ghana through an EI introduced to fight COVID-19 by the president, which targeted mobile telecommunication companies. Stay with 97.3. CTFM for more on these and many other stories on Eyewitness News. And in business... Ghana Stock Exchange advances process to develop key digital infrastructure projects to help fund managers access information on the markets. As in some 50 minutes with Anita Kisi Mriku. Eyewitness News is live across the country on a number of affiliate stations. Across the globe, we are on citynewsroom.com. It's an interactive show, so you can join us on WhatsApp 0549 996. Send us tweets. Hashtag City Newsroom. Tweet at Umaru Sanda or at City973. The man known as Kisi Jabin, who has been named to be Ghana's new special prosecutor, went before the 26-member appointments committee. I believe with the resignation of Ablakwa should be 25-member appointments committee of parliament today, today for questioning. Let's hear what transpired. Akosia. The Appointments Committee of Parliament has recommended Kisie Jabeng for approval as Special Prosecutor. According to the Chairman of the Committee and First Deputy Speaker in Parliament, Joe Oseiwusu, the approval from the committee is unanimous after the nominee was questioned for hours. Parliament will later debate the report of the Appointments Committee and approve the nomination or otherwise. Here is Chairman of the Committee, Joe Oseiwusu, speaking to the media after the vetting. Put our recommendations before the House for the House to determine uh, approval or disapproval of our recommendation. Did he answer the questions to your expectations as well as today's session? What were your own <laughs> observations? Uh, my observation, my committee view is simply to recommend the House to approve the nomination or not. As to how other people value or view his answers, uh, I'd rather leave it to them. I just stay within the rules and just make recommendations to the House. The committee um, unanimously agreed to recommend him to the House for approval. That was um, Joe Asaiwusu, the chairman of the appointment committee and first deputy speaker of parliament. And that announcement should excite him, except that the general house would be debating the report of the committee, which is yet to be presented and will know whether or not 
the House itself or as a whole would be adopting and approving the report, which means uh, Kese Jabin becomes the special prosecutor. But what were his views on key issues relating to the area he is going to work in? Let's hear. Akosia, tell us what he's been telling the Appointments Committee. Well, during his time before the committee, Special Prosecutor nominee Kisie Jabeng assured that he will make corruption costly to his beneficiaries, despite admitting that he could not stop the practice. According to him, the act of corruption for which the office of the Special Prosecutor was put together to fight is grand for which no human establishment can eradicate. Of a named individual, which I'd like to state that I prefer to wear my own shoes. In the sense that I am my own man and I'm coming with my own experiences and professional training. In this quest, my conscience and my learning of the law are going to be my guide. My strategy is that I'm not naive to assume that I'm coming to stop corruption. There's no way I can stop corruption. God himself will not even uh, 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 claim to that. But I'm going to make corruption very costly, very, very costly to engage in, in terms of conflict of interest. Jamai has just said that he'll make corruption costly, high-risk activity. How do you intend to work that? Exactly. Thank you. Honorable Chair. First, I'm going to institute what I call pressure for progress. And in, the, in this quest, there will be a systemic review of all public agencies. What was the word you... I said, I have termed it pressure for progress. Pressure for progress. Yes. Very well. I thought it was a Latin word you... No. Forgetting. <laughs> Get it out. <laughs> I'm going to institute systemic reviews of public sector institutions and the development of integrity plans. And here, this is what I intend to do. What, why can't we have our own corruption perceptions index, for instance? Why can't I rank public sector agencies against each other and at the end of the year publicize the results as to which institution is performing well and which institution is not performing well. In that quest, if you are head of an institution and persistently your institution is drawing the short straw in terms of uh, uh, the perception of corruption from the point of view as of experts, from the point of view of business people, you will set up. Because... Um, <clears throat> Special Prosecutor, you are aware that you are being appointed to operate a particular law. Where will you draw your authority to be publishing um, uh, perception, corruption, or corruption perception of agencies? Where under the law will you have that your authority from? Now, which, uh, 
that empowers me if I'm giving the nod by this house to institutionalize risk assessment in respect of public agencies. And in doing risk assessment, that's of the activities of public sector agencies, uh, it is a form of uh, uh, institutionalization of that systemic review of their, of their activities. The act also empowers me periodically, if I'm giving the nod, to publish my, uh, the activities of the OSP and uh, the operations engaged in. In line with this, it is an offshoot of the mandate of the OSP that I could go ahead after the process of um, uh, risk assessment, integrity of every public sector agency, to then come out with my results as to who is doing well and who is not doing well. It is an offshoot of that mandate. The special prosecutor nominee also refuted claims of his involvement in the controversial Ejapa royalties deal. This followed calls for the rejection of his nomination by former special prosecutor Martin Amidou over claims of the nominee's close links with one of the law firms that worked on the deal. But, but reacting to a question by Bosa North MP James Agalga, Mr. Ejaben stated that the claims were inaccurate. Whoever says I'm a surrogate of a law firm or implicates me in the Japan transaction clearly does not know me. Because if you know me, you wouldn't make such allegations. And so all these things that came up, I took it as coming from uninformed positions. Because I was not involved in the Japan transaction in any form or manner by any stretch of the imagination, however fertile. As for relationships, as I just disclosed, the fact that I was so close to you at some point in our lives will not give you, uh, uh, or you not give me a free pass because of that relationship. And that is why I'm here. And if there is a matter, I'm not going to say because I know one person or the other, I'm going to give the person a free pass. I certainly will investigate. But the truth of the matter ought to be told. I wasn't involved in the deal. I was nowhere near it. Indeed, until it started coming up, I didn't even know what it was. For the record, that is the truth. And so I'm no one surrogate. As I said earlier, I'm my own man, and I prefer to wear my own shoes. If the law firm was named, it would have even been uh, 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 a fair to me. But if you say I'm a surrogate of a law firm, uh, clearly you don't know me. I run my own law firm. I've been running it since 2014 as a managing partner. I cannot be described as a surrogate of that law firm or any other law firm. Honorable Chair, that's my response. Mr. Ejabin further defended his competence in handling the office despite criticism on the basis of his age and experience. It is dangerous. No matter how you look at it, 
if we are just to leave it the way it is. It is a common law offense, which has been accepted under the Constitution. But the danger, as I pointed out, is that because it does not have defined punishments for it, the punishment at some point may not fit the crime at all. And that is the danger. Because if we were to, you were to be cited for contempt today and say the judge gives you two weeks in jail, maybe you were let off. Same act placed before another judge may fetch someone two years. How do you justify that? It is a simple matter, in my opinion, of just delineating it. Okay, this act amounts to contempt. And in respect of this, if Parliament or the courts were to cite you for contempt and hold you liable, within these four corners, we can hold you liable. Honorable Chair, I think it is a, a safer course to go than to leave it open as it is. There is a clear and present danger. That was Special Prosecutor nominee Kisi Ejabing. This Eyewitness News on 97.3 CTFM. We are coming to you from our studios here in Adabraka in Accra. What do you make of the submissions he made uh, before the committee? Let us know. Send your view 0549-986-996. You can also tweet at Umaru Sanda or at City973. Let me just make this quick clarification and correction. I earlier said that the committee's membership had reduced to 25 as a result of the resignation of Samuel Kujetua Blackwa. My attention has just been drawn to the fact that the Busan North MP, former Deputy Minister for the Interior, James Agalga, has been named to replace him. So that makes the uh, committee 13 apiece. When we come back, we'll speak to Vitos Azim. He's an anti-corruption crusader. He monitored the vetting. What does he make of the answers given by the man who's going to occupy an office that he'll be working with very soon. Eyewitness News. Be there as it happens. You welcome back to Eyewitness News on 97.3 CTFM. Parliament's Appointments Committee has vetted uh, the man who's been nominated to be Special Prosecutor Kisi Jabin. And after hours of grilling, we're told by the chairman of the committee, Joe Sewusu, MP Bekwai, that they have recommended him for approval, which means if he goes before the House, the debate would happen, but the recommendation is that let's approve unless there's a strong opposition, he may well become the special prosecutor. Vitus Azim is an anti-corruption crusader used to head the GII, Ghana Inten Integrity Initiative. Sir, you're welcome to Eyewitness News. Have you monitored uh, what the man who's going to occupy the office has been saying publicly, at least and officially, what do you make of him and the job he's going to do? Well, I think that he has started by raising the hopes, expectations of Ghanaians. Some of them, even in his personal capacity, like say he's his own man and uh, that kind of thing. But you see, as a special prosecutor, you are not going to work alone. So you are definitely going to work with people. You are definitely going to depend on the government of the day for public resources. And you are definitely going to rely on other state institutions to provide you with the necessary information to carry out your work. So when you raise people's expectations, and in less than one year, you begin to see that there are problems. Then people start having on several comments about you. Otherwise, the points that he has made, they are very good, very laudable pledges. But whether he will be able to go by them, whether he will be able to resist the pressures that come from all corners to do those things that he says he will do, that is my concern. And I believe that will be the concern for many, whether or not he can really be his own man. I believe that's the only thing people have been talking about since he was named, not necessarily about 
any other thing. Of course, people have issue with his competence and his age, which he has parried away today. But the critical one for many critics is that, well, can he really truly become independent of his appointees? Yes, so that, that's my point. Because uh, in this country, for your name to be mentioned, I don't know how many lawyers we have in this country, in this country, but for your name to be mentioned, there's already, people already have suspicions that you must have been having some relationship with the party in power or some people highly placed within the party in power. And so, apart from all other things, the pressures that come from family and friends, the pressures that come from party people, the pressures that come from old boys and all that, they are going to be there. Then you look at what you need to do your work. The resources, financial resources for you, to be able to recruit qualified persons, persons with integrity, to be able to do your work. may not be forthcoming. You know the previous pressure to be complained about delays or no release of the funds that he needed to set up the office. It may not be different. And you see, that is one way that government used to twist the hands of independent institutions. They may not give you the necessary money. They may not give you the way ahead. They go ahead to recruit people, the number of people that you want, the quality of people that you want, and all that. Then institutions that are supposed to cooperate with you may not be giving you the necessary information for you to go ahead with your work. They might be complicit. They might be duplicate, duplications. And so, yes, there are good pledges, but he has to be cautious that he's not going to work alone. Interesting. I know that people, and justifiably so, would be comparing him with the man who once or first occupied that office, Martin Amido. Would that be a fair thing to do? And if that's a fair thing to do, what does a comparison look like? We've seen Martin's vetting, we've seen his vetting. We know the character of Martin Amido. We know how he left that office. Now, the reason he left that office, he said there was interference. Interference has become an issue now with this current special prosecutor except that people are already drawing this uh, inferences that he is already uh, a part well, a person from an inside of the government how do you reconcile these things for us well i think that we should not compare the two they have different backgrounds they have different views about how to go about the business so we should not compare the two but there are certain things as i've mentioned that will affect the two, or that have affected Martin, that will also affect it. In terms of, I mentioned the party, party pressures, the family pressures, the, the friends pressures, the resources. If, for example, he says he needs 20 investigators and 20 lawyers, and the government says we have only money to give you five lawyers and five investigators, what can he do about it? If he starts an investigation, and his friend, as we all know, as, as has come out, the attorney general says the government is interested in this case. Please don't go ahead. Will he be bold enough to say, look, I'm going ahead. I'm using my, this is my principle. I'm going to go ahead. Will he be bold enough to do that? So those are the issues that uh, sort of make it a bit difficult for us to just say, oh, things are going to, be, uh, to compare. Maybe he's a friend to the, the government. Maybe he's a friend to the party. Maybe he's a friend to the financial minister. So he might get more resources than my campaign. So I think that comprising we shouldn't make it now. He has not started a job and we should not make that comparison. Okay, let me bring in another comparison. Maybe it may not be necessarily related about their personality, but 
People would ask the question, Martin Amido, very experienced, has been running mate, has been Deputy Attorney General for 12 years, has been Attorney General Minister for the Interior. Given the job as Special Prosecutor, he couldn't do it and had to walk. Can Kisi Ejabin succeed where Martin Amido failed? It is possible for him to succeed. As I said, see, Martin Amido came in as an NDC person. Everybody said he was an NDC person. And people even drew the conclusion that the government was bringing him in just to make a name, just to show how they're determined to fight the, the, to fight corruption. And so they, they bring someone from outside and say, look, even we, we are bold enough to bring out this person. It is different with this particular person. People think that he's probably a party person. He has, he has, he has relationship with the Attorney General and others. So that is the side. He might be getting all that he needs, the resources and whatever. So it is possible that he can make it. But there are also costs in terms of finance, in terms of his integrity, and in terms of his success in getting all the sources that he needs. And that is the worrying part. If it means I'm going to give you this money for you to do this, you must do this this way. Or even the approval process. Who knows whether there were any negotiations for the committee to approve? We don't know. And when you already yield to any negotiation, at the time you are coming in, then it becomes problematic for you when you start your work. Because you probably spoke to the party chair, I might speak to somebody, somebody's going to come and say, do you know how you got that position? And then you are stranded. We'll be, we'll be watching closely. And of course, yes. I'm sure we'll have this conversation uh, maybe in, in a quarter or in three months or so from now. Uh, we can oh, do another assessment. This is my time. Maybe in six it months. It may need three months to settle down, but this is my time. Very well. Thank you. I was going to bring in another issue, but let's leave it because of time. Thank you so much for speaking to us. You're welcome. Have a good evening. You too. That's Vitus Azim. He's an anti-corruption crusader. This is Eyewitness News on 97.3. Uh, CTFM, lots of your messages are coming through. We're just doing an assessment of Kisie Jabin's performance before the Appointments Committee. You've heard there from uh, Vitus Azim, a gentleman who works in the anti-corruption space and uh, who has worked with the former Special Prosecutor and who may work with this current one as well, uh, a man who has been given thumbs up by the committee that vetted him. Let me speak to one of the members of the committee General Muhammad Ayarga represents the people of Baku Central. Honorable, you're welcome to Eyewitness News. You're a member of the committee. Um, I'm going to ask you your own personal assessment. I'm sure you asked questions and what the answers were like. But before then, please help us understand this. I had earlier said that since a black was resignation from the committee, the committee has been reduced to 25. I received information to the contrary suggesting that uh, the Bursa North MP James Agaga had been named to replace him on the committee. Then I just received another counter information from a member of the House that um, Agaga has always been a member of the committee, so there's no replacement for Ablaqua. Please help us understand. Do you have an extra person from the minority side joining, or you are still 1312? Uh, uh, we're still 1312. Nobody has replaced anyone. Oh, thank you for that clarification. Now, please share with us what your own assessment of the nominee was when he appeared before you. Well, I mean, it was uh, carried live by your various uh, media houses. So I think that everybody had the questions we asked and then the responses that he gave. I think the basic thing really is to look at 
the requirement of Act 959, um, who qualifies to be a special prosecutor, and to ask yourself the basic questions. And from the various items ticked, I mean, he met all the requirements, the years of practice as a lawyer, I mean, the years of uh, being called to the bar as a lawyer, and all the disqualifications, uh, we haven't been able to show that any of them pass him from becoming a special prosecutor. So that is usually the main thing that we as members of the committee look at. Now, all the other issues that people discuss in terms of competence and et cetera and views and positions on issues, we ask all those questions to, to just get the person's uh, take on, 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 on issues. But legally, you look at the, the main criteria set out by the law, and he definitely met all those uh, criteria. And um, we have no issues that disqualify him. So as a committee, we have uh, agreed that he is eligible to be the, the special prosecutor and recommend him to Parliament for approval. Did you have to restrict the questions to Justice Office or it was broad? I noticed there was a part where the the Deputy Speaker, who chairs the committee, overruled a question. I think that would be a question from Patrick Boama or so. Or was it? Uh, yeah, I, sh- I think it was because he thought that that question was not related necessarily to corruption. He even cited the Speaker's ruling uh, on the Kenoforiata issue yesterday when he appeared before the house was it supposed to be a restrictive interview or it was supposed to be broad i mean the questions were broad but then we have um uh rules that govern debates and work in parliament there's a limit to the kind of questions that you can ask i think that on this occasion with all due respect the speaker, deputies, the chairman of the committee, uh, I would say, wasn't really on point because he cited a provision of the standing orders which is applicable to questions asked to ministers during question time and the kind of things that you cannot ask of a minister during question time. But I don't think that those questions, issues relate to the work of the appointment uh, committee. Under the standard orders, you can't ask the minister for his opinion or something of that sort. You just have to limit yourself to facts. So, you know, on this occasion, I think Patrick Obama was asking for his opinion on something. And so the chairman applied the rules relating to um, ministers answering questions to uh, this proceeding. But in the past, we've asked the nominees about their opinion on matters of policy and etc., and they have uh, gr- gladly expressed them. So, so that was, that was a, more, a more technical matter. But, you know, there was really no restriction as to the kind of questions that you could, you could ask. And, and so, you know, you could, you could hear from the deliberations that we ask questions, you know, from from whatever dimensions that people wanted to ask. Thank you so much. And uh, you have explained to us why you decided that it should be unanimous in your decision, which means the House may most likely 
approve him. I was asking Vices Azim, Azim before you joined I, us. I, yes. I, 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 let me let me say that the unanimous recommendation uh, people should not take it that automatically the House will always approve anybody that the committee unanimously recommends. Plenary, you know, is a higher body, and at plenary, uh, there can be a decision not to accept the recommendations of a committee. It's not as if the the the, the house is always bound. The house can can take a different decision. But the position usually is that once we unanimously recommend, the house uh, will respect its committee and then approve. But I don't want it to sound like legally once the committee makes a recommendation for approval, the House is is, is bound by that. I think that's my recollection of uh, uh, the, the, the Constitution. Thank you. Let's leave it here. Uh, Muhammad Yariga, Boku Central Member of Parliament, Member of the Appointments Committee of Parliament. This is Eyewitness News on 97.3 City FM. From the House of Legislature, let's go to the judiciary now. There was a a judgment today delivered a judgment that has to do with your private details or data on your mobile phone which we are told the government was harvesting now the court has arrested that decision and actually instructed for that to be scrapped now let me speak to the man who took this case to court and uh, the story is that the, Accra, the High Court in Accra has ordered the government to stop collecting the personal data of mobile phone subscribers. Let's get the history to this case and understand the judgment today. Francis Kojo Kwatin Arthur is a private legal practitioner who actually went to court on this matter. Mr. Arthur, you're welcome to Eyewitness News. First of all, give us the background to this uh, suit you filed and explain to us what the judgment today means. Yeah, thank you and thank you to your listeners. Uh, Omari. Well, the background to this case was uh, sometime in March of 2020, when the executive instrument 63 was uh, issued by the president. And you know the EI 63 is in connection with contact tracing, that is at the height of the pandemic, the global pandemic. And uh, the dictate of the EI 63 was to the effect that the president needs uh, the information of the telephony subscribers regarding their call details, their text message details, the mobile money details, the international roaming details, or in the contact tracing. So indeed, I went to court because I felt that uh, was an illegality and that was an intrusion into the private uh, private person. So indeed, I asked the court that uh, what has the mobile money got to do with contact tracing? And today, the court did agree with me to the extent that the court directed the uh, chief executive of the National Communications Authority to make sure that all, all these information which have been made available to them, that is uh, by the telephone uh, service providers, i.e. Vodafone, Edel, and Globe. The court directed that the chief executive of NCA should make sure that all these pieces of information
information on their database should be deleted. And he, after deleting, should make sure that will report to the registrar of the court within 14 days. Indeed, the court also noted that certain aspects of EI3 infringes on the infringes on the privacy the privacy rights of uh, the citizens. So the court ordered that uh, those aspects, the parliament should take steps to expand those aspects of the EI agree within 12 months. Yeah, so this is what happened in court today. Interesting, but you would also acknowledge the fact that the EI was introduced to fight, among a number of other things, the COVID-19 pandemic. What you have gone to do in the court, and without prejudice to what the judge has said, is to prevent the government from fighting COVID-19 through the contact tracing method. Why did you do that? Far from that, Mario, the court did not prevent the president from fighting this uh, pandemic in the form of uh, or in the nature of contact tracing. What um, the third respondent in the case, that is a private limited uh, company, County DV, sought to do was to send out a letter to the uh, service providers requesting for some details on harsh details of the subscribers, which includes you, Umaru Sanda, your mobile money details. And indeed, if your mobile money wallet is connected to your bank account, they also need it to your bank details. If you travel out of Ghana and you go out, they want your international call details, your roaming details and all that. It was my case with the court that all these pieces of information are illegal. And, and indeed, my mobile money that I was sent to my cousin in my village, if you are school, my friend somewhere in the Bolinga in the Upper West region, nothing to do with the contact trace. So the court did agree with me and uh, struck that aspect of the uh, collaborative work with the presidency down. And indeed, the court did observe that uh, the information requested by the respondent, in this case, Kelly DVG, was ultra-virus, was illegal, was unreasonable. And indeed, as the uh, regulator, that is the National Communications Authority, to take steps to expound and clean all uh, base or uh, all storage of such information. Well, in whatever form that is collected, they should delete it. How would you know and that? The, how how would you know that they have? Well, the court has given it orders. So, I am my indeed the lawyers apply for copies of the orders as soon as it is, the orders are ready. Copies will be served on the NTA, and uh, from there, you will know how I will follow up to make sure that they, 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 they adhere to the directives given by the court. Very well. Thank you for speaking to us, and congratulations, sir. Thank you, Omar, and good evening once again. That's Francisco Quatin Arthur, private legal practitioner, who went to court and said that the, the, the government should stop harvesting your private information through your mobile phone and the high court has ruled for him eyewitness news will be back don't go away eyewitness news be there as it happens you welcome back to eyewitness news on 97.3 ctfm we are coming to you from our studios here at Adabraka in Accra. let's go to the labor front now the university teachers association of ghana we're told is embarking on a strike from August 2nd. Professor Charles Mafu is the national president of UTAC. Prof, you welcome to Eyewitness News. It's almost 
like your association's name has become uh, synonymous to strikes. What's the matter this time around? Well, good evening. Good evening. And good evening to your listeners too. It is unfortunate you are associating our association name to a strike, but I mean, maybe you are right. That used to be the case, but if you can check your your facts, you realize that in the past, I don't know how many years, Utah has never gone on strike. Of course, there are cases we have threatened strike, but that is that has been because the uh, government has always failed to heed to the call of Utah. To be fair, your strikes have been on on book and research allowance, and I think that has been for a while now. What's the latest oh, yeah. trouble now? Yeah, yeah. the problem, uh, the current trouble has to do with our conditions of service. You know, in the past three years, we have tried to ask government to give us conditions of service. You know, since the uh, initiation of uh, single spine, and uh, that put Lexus uh, professional allowance to 114% of their basic salary. Later on, it was frozen, right? And so since 2011 to now, uh, universities have received the same professional allowance. You know, and so if you do the calculations right now, our professional allowance has reduced to about 60%. Instead of 114%, lectures have been very magnanimous, very patient, very considerate, looking up to government to see to it that this course of this course of the trend is changed. And so they, we were told that uh, government has set up uh, some kind of consultancy to do what they call market survey so that they can place us at the appropriate place. This was two years ago. In fact, we agreed with government to the extent that they gave us something called basic allowance, uh, non-basic allowance. And uh, I don't know if you follow, you follow that trend about two years now. That roadmap for the basic allowance ended last year. In other words, 2020. One would have expected that from January, we would have been you know, restored to our previous self or a new uh, you know, level. We have been putting pressure on government to the extent that, as of now, even when we attend meetings, we fail to get the full complement of government side to listen to our call. To such an extent that the last straw, the last straw was yesterday, when we have indicated to them that by the end of this month, if we do not resolve this issue about our basic salary, you know, Omaru, it will interest you to know that it is on the basis of our basic salary that our pensions are calculated. And so if it stagnates for this long while, it is definitely going to affect our pensions in the near future. In fact, most of our colleagues that are going home this year are going to be disadvantaged. We said, look, it's about time we stop this. Let's look at our basic salary. And government is dragging its feet all this while. As we speak, the so-called market survey they were supposed to do, I understand it hasn't been started. Yet we were told two years ago that it will take less than six months or at most a year to finish, so that we could be placed on our proper place. Well, this hasn't happened. Seeing this and knowing that government will not take us anywhere, we needed to give them this warning. And we have given them that warning. And we are hoping that but it's at first something dramatic happens. Otherwise, as you rightly put it, on August 2nd, we are striking. Okay, this thing you call professional allowance, what is it? Thank you. You know, uh, there was this animal called single spine. It came and most public workers were placed on it. 
At the time, the tax was placed on senior spine salary structure. The so-called uh, professional allowance, or what we call market premium, any of them goes, was calculated on our basic salary. And it was 114% of our basic salary. In other words, it was more than our basic salary. I hope you are following. I'm following. Hello? Yes, I'm listening yes. to you. Good. Thank you very much. And so one would have expected that every year, as basic salaries are raised, all be small. I guess you remember what happened this last time. Uh, public workers are going to be, their salary are going to be raised by 4%. 4 4%. When others are being raised 100% and 120%. I think they are more human than all of us. And then, instead of professional allowance being calculated on this basic allowance, government then issued a white paper to freeze the market premium. So if at that time I was getting 2,000 uh, 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 professional allowance, it was frozen, and then until now, I still received the same 2,000. To the extent that now, uh, our calculation, our market premium is no more 114% of the basic salary. It's about 58%. In fact, at most, it's about 60%. Is this fair? And over the years, you know, everything has been changing. We've been knocking on the door of government. We have given that we, we had a consultant. We, draw, we drew our own condition of service. We have given it to government to consider it. We did not even push it through their throat. We said, let's talk about it. Areas we can accept, areas we cannot accept, so that at the day we move forward. And people have decided not to listen to us. And that is where we are today. Have you gotten any indication whether or not the government will listen to you and what can or what will prevent you from going on the strike on Monday? You see, we've been doing this, uh, attending meetings, as I said, when we told them about this condition of service about three years ago. It's about two years ago that they pleaded with us that before they can pass the basic allowance, the so called market market can be needed to be done. You know, but uh, the market survey. I don't know if I'm right, but they were supposed to create the market survey. There were no uh, issues about risk factors and other issues that will kind of feed into or inform the levels at which every public sector worker should be. We have waited for two years for this. And all along, things have not been stagnated, right? But our salaries are stagnated. That is what we are talking about. We'll get back to you in the coming days to see um, if you find a solution or closure to this particular issue. But thank you for speaking to us, Prof. Thank you, sir. That's Prof. Charles Mafo, National President of the University Teachers Association of Ghana, UTAG. We called officials of the Fair Wages and Salaries Commission, uh, but uh, we are unable to reach them to respond to this particular issue. Of course, yeah, what other stories do we have for our listeners? A 36-year-old man, Stephen Akowa, has been shot dead in an alleged robbery attack at Tantra Hill in Accra. According to some of his neighbors, the incident occurred on Thursday dawn when the robbers fired a gunshot through the door of the deceased. Some eyewitnesses spoke to City News. They were youths, but you could see that they were highly intoxicated. Like The way they were talking, they were drowsy. They were speaking outside. Even the way they were speaking the outside, like somebody was learning how to speak the Hausa. But I started hearing Audu, Audu, Audu. So one of them is called Audu. One of them was in, in the marks, but the other two were not. 
they were here for almost an hour and me they locked me in the room and left and they were doing all sorts of things in the house 30 minutes later they came back and they they told me the money i gave them wasn't enough if i don't give them money they will shoot me or they will take my son my one year old boy they took him that they are going to sell him they will make a lot of money out of him if i don't give them and i told them that's all i have but they can't they should take all the other gadget they said they don't want any gadget so that's when they they left they didn't take him it happened in the midnight around um one to two o'clock so what i heard was that i heard a noise but i actually don't know what happened so when i came down i saw like they turned out we got it here so i was like what happened and they were like they attacked the guy mother tenant those were eyewitness accounts of a robbery attack that left one dead at tantra hill in accra now the acting chief executive officer of the national youth authority nelson Owusuansa, says his outfit is concerned about the recent hike in robbery cases in the country believed to be perpetrated by the youth according to him these heinous crimes are as a result of unemployment and the inability of the youth to venture into voluntary work. Speaking to the media after a validation program of the Youth Volunteers Program Framework, Mr. Ansar indicated that he was poised to create avenues to solve the matter. Away from that, several motorists have been apprehended for flouting the 50 km per hour speed limit on the Kanda Highway in Accra. The motorists, ranging from drivers of government officials to commercial and private vehicles, as well as Okada riders, were arrested for excessive speeding on the highway. The exercise was concluded by the Central Motor Transport and Traffic Department of the Ghana Police Service in collaboration with the Accra Metropolitan Assembly. Speaking to City News, the commanding officer for the Central MTTD of the Ghana Police Service, DCOP Martin Ayi, said culprits had been issued chits to appear before the motor court on Friday, July 23. We are here to get people who are going beyond the posted speed limit arrested and get them prosecuted. Because we know speed is one of the killers, uh, the causes of uh, accidents in, in, in town. And uh, if you want to, to, to stop the crashes in town, then drivers must minimize their speed or they must drive at the minimum the speed limit. As drivers, they should know. Even if the speed limit is not posted, you are driving, driving in a build-up area in town. And so when you are driving in town, you don't, you don't zoom like you are Michael Schumacher. So... That is no excuse at all. They should know that they are in town. They are in build-up area. Build-up is all these places, offices, houses there. You don't go beyond certain uh, posted speed limits. The law lies in the bosom of the judges. There is a recommended fee, uh, a fine, but depending on your demeanor in court, the judge can decide to vary it. You heard the commanding officer for the Central Motor Transport and Traffic Department of the Ghana Police Service, DCOP Martin Aye. The Minister for Foreign Affairs and Regional Integration, Shirley Ayoko Botri, has informed Parliament that over 10,000 Ghanaians were evacuated from countries across the world during the COVID-19 pandemic last year. According to her, this was part of efforts by the government to come to the aid of many nationals who were stranded abroad due to the pandemic. Answering questions on the floor of Parliament, Shelly Ayoko-Botri revealed that $1.5 million was expended on the cost of airfare for the evacuees from the UAE, China, Lebanon, as well as Western Central Africa, while 44 million Ghana cities were spent to quarantine the evacuees. For the purposes of determining the full extent of government responsibility and resource commitment, 
the evacuation exercise was grouped into four categories, namely, one, ability to pay. This comprised private individuals, business corporate sponsored employees, privately sponsored students on exchange programs, government sponsored students who were yet to complete their courses of study but without any compelling reasons, insisted on returning home. It also covered foreign-sponsored evacuations, which only required government to provide travel documents and guarantee safe passage, as well as Ghana resident permit holders, including diplomats and their dependents. Two, government-funded evacuation. This consisted of government officials who had traveled on official business, government-sponsored students who had completed their courses of study, as well as government-sponsored students who were yet to complete their courses of study but were compelled to leave their places of residence. Three, distressed and the destitute. This comprised Ghanaians who had traveled to various countries before the advent of the pandemic but whose circumstances had worsened due to the crisis and consequent travel bans and other restrictions that were imposed by countries around the world. And four, deportees and returnees, which comprised Ghanaians who had been scheduled for removal from various countries. Mr. Speaker, to ensure a well-coordinated exercise, the ex Evacuation was undertaken in phases. This decision was primarily informed by financial and logistical considerations, namely the capacity of quarantine and isolation centers to hold large numbers of evacuees, and the human resource capacity of the COVID-19 task force and other collaborating agencies to handle the large number of Ghanaians to be evacuated. You heard the Minister for Foreign Affairs and Regional Integration, Shelly Ayoko Butri. Eyewitness News. Be there as it happens. Get the details. Every significant financial transaction, every market movement, and all the policies that affect your business. City Business News. Be informed. It's now time for City Business News on Eyewitness News, brought to you by Vodafone and powered by citybusinessnews.com. My name is Anita Kisimunkulet Cecil for the details. As part of efforts to increase investments on the local burrs, the managing director of the Ghana Stock Exchange, Echo Afeji, has revealed that the exchange is in the final phase of developing key digital infrastructure projects to enable fund managers access information on the markets. According to him, the move is meant to drive more interest among investors to which the local pension funds are not exempt. Speaking at a workshop for pension fund managers in Accra, Managing Director of the Ghana Stock Exchange, Echo Feji, noted that the move will also enable them to increase the investor base of the exchange. We've intensified our engagements in trying to get more listings on the market. So we've been talking to many companies from the fintech area, ICT generally, uh, uh, insurance, banks, etc. So that is one key thing we also need to do in order to get more. One other thing that falls under the capital market plan, uh, which interests me a lot, is how to increase the investment base. 
investor base, generally. The investor base in Ghana is very, very low. It's below 2%. In other words, we have below 2% of our people investing in securities uh, generally. If you go to the CSD, we don't have more than a million uh, accounts. And about 80% of those accounts are holding debt. One of the key things that we are doing is collaborating with fintech companies in order to develop very convenient digital solutions. We want to take the etching to the doorstep of the investor so that the investor can just pick up a mobile phone and be able to invest through his broker any time to be able to access the market for information at any time to. And that is what we want to do as quickly as possible. Managing Director of the Ghana Stock Exchange, Echo Afeji, speaking there. Moving on, the ranking member of the Trade Industry and Tourism Committee of Parliament, Emmanuel Amakofi-Bor, has called for a comprehensive cost-benefit analysis of the recently ratified interim trade partnership agreements between Ghana and the United Kingdom of Great Britain. The agreements, which will, among other things, allow for duty and quota-free access to the UK markets for goods originating from Ghana, as well as a gradual liberalisation of tariffs on a majority of UK imports to Ghana, was ratified by Ghana's parliament last week. While back in the new agreements, Mr. Amakofi Boa noted that revenue losses to be recorded in the first year of the agreements was a cause for concern and called for effective monitoring to ensure Ghana benefits in the long term. We asked in this uh, discussion with the Ministry of Trade, of course, benefit analysis. Originally, it was not brought. But Mr. Speaker, when it was finally brought to us, it became obvious that in the first year, for example, 2021, Ghana will lose revenue to the tune of over 115 million Ghana cities, representing 10.16% of total revenue. Now, the coming years, the revenue that we are going to lose, we are not provided. And I think we've asked the Minister of Trade to make sure that that information is forthcoming. So we know. A point that was made was that there was some cost of fiscal adjustment in terms of support that we are going to get from the UK to really help pushing these losses we've talked about, which is very important. The Speaker, this agreement is very important. And so we must, yes, sign it, but we must not take our eye on the ball. For example, one of the things we ask the Ministry of Trade to do is the issue of monitoring, strengthening the monitoring regime to ensure that indeed we are following the spirit and letter of this agreement. Ranking member of the Trade Industry and Tourism Committee of Parliament, Emmanuel Amakofi Boa. The president of the Ghana Institute of Engineers, Engineer Reverend Professor Charles Adams, says engineers without professional licenses will, from November this year, face prosecution under the Engineering Council Act of 2011, Act 819, if found practicing. Engineer Reverend Professor Adams said this in an interview with City Business News during the induction of 45 new members and the inauguration of the Western, Western North and Central Region Regional Chapter Office in Takradi. He explained that the licensing measure is to ensure professionalism in engineering to prevent substandard construction in the country. This country, every now and then you hear building collapse, you hear people have died from various practices by people who call themselves engineers. Not all these people may not necessarily be professional engineers. So under the Act, what we are saying is that we need all people, persons, whether they are craftsmen, whether they are technicians or technologists or engineers to 
append their signature and like get licensed to operate so that they do not fall foul of the law. Why? Because in this country, starting somewhere in November, if you practice engineering or you call yourself an engineer and you are not licensed, you can be taken to court and punished. So what we are encouraging everyone, whether you're a craftsman, technician, or technology or you've gone to engineering school you need to find the appropriate licensing body of the engineering council of ghana presidents of the ghana institute of engineers engineer reverend professor charles adams finally the sole use of the new excise tax dump will take effects by the end of august this year this is according to the commissioner general of the ghana revenue authority reverend amisha dai osu amwa the excise tax stamp, which came into enforcement on the 1st of March 2018, is a specially designed stamp with digital and other security features, which is affixed on excisable goods to show that taxes and duties have been paid. The new tax stamp, according to the GRA, is built with special security features and intended to help check illicit trading, smuggling and counterfeiting of excisable products. Currently, both the new and old excise tax stamps are being used, but according to the Commissioner General of the GRA, the sole use of the new stamps will protect and increase Ghana's tax revenue. Implemented and the new uh, service provider is currently um, working. And then there were initial challenges with the affixing of the new stamps on some of the products because the texture of the new stamps were different from the texture of the old ones. But since then, we have brought in new affixing devices to make sure that they work along very well with the current texture of the stamps. As you are aware, because we wanted to do a parallel run, we ran the two system parallel. Uh, August ending, the old one will go completely out. August ending. Commissioner General of the Ghana Revenue Authority, Reverend Amishadai Osu Amwa. He spoke to City Business News at the sidelines of an event organized by the Ghana Chamber of Commerce and Industry. That's all for City Business News on Eyewitness News. It was sponsored by Vodafone, Together We Can, and powered by your most comprehensive business news website, citybusinessnews.com. My name is Anita Kisimriku. Up next is Point Blank. This is Point Blank on Eyewitness News. I am Omaru Sanda Amadu. Tonight on Point Blank, we're going back to Parliament, the Appointments Committee. The members of that committee have been questioning the new person named to be Special Prosecutor. His name is Kisi Jabe. If you missed the answers he gave, listen to them again. I just want to find out you in 2019 you were made uh, the chair of the electronic communication tribunal right yes honorable chair did you have resources to be able to work I would wish for more indeed in my handing over notes uh, given the note I'll have to exit in my handing over notes is one of the things that I'm going to talk about and 
I would wish that uh, the funding of the tribunal uh, is divorced from uh, the regulator. Uh, now, it is a very invidious position to be in where your perpetual respondent, which is the regulator, is also your paymaster. Now, if your uh, respondent, forever respondent, because it is always the respondent, it is never <laughs> the appellant because of the way the act is. If it is also your paymaster, if on an occasion you get people in charge who are not this crop of persons, I'll say we've not encountered things like that in respect of them, but we shouldn't base legal operations on the goodwill of persons and individuals. So if you make the regulator, the paymaster of the tribunal that is supposed to sit uh, on, uh, in an appellate uh, uh, function over his decisions, yeah, naturally it will be unhappy. I pay you so you sit on my decisions and then uh, rule against me. Uh, if we, we, we separate uh, that uh, uh, association, and uh, channel the funds for the operation of the tribunal from another source, and the tribunal will be, will be better placed to do its job. But there's always the case of hamstringing if you do not meet a right crop of persons, or if there is uh, that clear danger of uh, a, a, a friction or a conflict. Because if I were to come out with a decision uh, tomorrow that is unfavorable, and the regulator, and then the next day you send your invoice, asking for a certain allowance. <laughs> the person is human. He's going to look at you sideways and say, yesterday you ruled against me. <laughs> Today you are coming for payment. Maybe let me sit on it for a while. It can happen. And that is what will uh, hamper the work of the tribunal. Yeah, but when, when, when you took over, did you try to, to talk to the uh, justice, uh, the Tiba, who had just resigned? On which I've always had a, uh, a good relationship with Ajasi Tateba. And because of his association uh, with the University of Ghana School of Law, uh, he always comes around uh, and we, we, we always have uh, interactions. So I uh, picked one or two things. And, 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 and that is one of the things that he actually asked me to look out for. Uh, because uh, that, that specter of your Respondents being your payment master is a very unhappy situation. Will you will you say that having stayed there for about uh, two years, NCA with its dealings with uh, uh, the operators, especially the radio stations, sometimes have hundred high handedness. With, with with my experience, I won't call it high handedness. You know, the the complaints that keep coming. Uh, uh, in respect of what you will call high-handedness uh, is in this context of uh, a, a, a foul cry of they, they are the referee and they are, they are also in the game. But that is how the law has made them. It is a regulator, it is in the game. So if you come to a tribunal and, and, and complain that they are the referee and they are also in the game, we only point out to you that that is the arrangement. Same as they are perpetual respondents and they are paymasters, we don't like it. So let's live with it. Maybe we should go down 
to the law and see how best we can clean we can clean these things up. But high handedness, no, I have not encountered it. What we have seen, especially in respect of the radio stations, is that by the time we assumed office, we came in, uh, the licenses had expired. Now the law does not grant my tribunal the power to issue licenses. If your license has not expired and you say the regulator is unfairly treating you and so we should set things right, uh, then we have the jurisdiction. If your license has expired and you're saying you are trying to get your license but the regulator is putting stumbling blocks in your path, then we have the jurisdiction. But if your license has expired and you don't have any grounds but you're just saying, I have been stopped from operating, and we ask, do you have a license to operate? And you do not have a license to operate. All we will tell you is that go back to the regulator. Apply again for a license. If they don't put unnecessary stumbling blocks in your path, then you come for redress. And with that posture, all, excuse me, with that posture, all the radio station cases were resolved in just a few weeks. Because uh, the appellant discontinued their appeals uh, by, by, that, by the wisdom in that approach, and they went back to the regulator because we, we noticed that all the licenses of the appellant, sorry, the license of all the appellants had expired, which then uh, robbed us of, of, of any jurisdiction. Because if you do not have a license, you cannot operate, and the tribunal cannot give you a license. It is a regulator that will give you the license. So you are in the wrong forum. Chairman, just want to find out, I mean, there was this publication, and I, I think the video to you is here, where after the death of Ahmed Swale, you made uh, uh, a comment with regards to uh, Honorable Kennedy Rapon. And to just preface, said, giving your four-year-old child will not speak this. I will not want to repeat the word you use. Do you remember that? Yes, I do, Honorable Chair. I know having worked with uh, Anas and the team, the pain that uh, you went through, especially all of us, after we heard the gruesome murder of uh, Ahmed Swale. You also said you should have apologized after he, the death. You said Honorable Kennedy Pong should have apologized. He should have apologized? He should have apologized for exposing his picture. Well, what I, I don't remember the exact words, but the gravamen of what I was saying was that uh, by putting out the young man's picture out there on television and calling uh, uh, for anyone who could see him to lay hands on him, he had exposed him. Uh, in a way that was most unfortunate, and so uh, he should own up to some responsibility. Uh, that was the government of, 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 of what I was saying. Because uh, it appeared to me that, uh, uh, sorry, it appeared to me that had he not put the picture on TV, uh, many people would not even have known of the young man uh, uh, to go after him. And so it exposed him uh, more uh, dangerously otherwise than it would have. And it is that contest that I place it, that the responsibility of putting his picture out there uh, was, 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 was clear. And do you think that 
up to date he's been held responsible at least for the part that he played I don't get the question. I'm saying that do you think the Honorable King Japan has been held responsible for at least the part that he played? Well, I have not seen any uh, processes in respect of that Honorable Chair. Uh, but uh, I still keep to what I said there that uh, that uh, uh, was exposing someone to uh, very a very dangerous situation and you, you remember in 2018 when the number 12 uh, 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 expose came out the reverberation was was not just local it was very international all the way to FIFA all the way to CAF and and there was a, a real shake-up so you had all manner of uh, there were so many referees that have been banned and all that as, as a result of this expose. Uh, not, even, not just in Ghana, in Kenya and other places too. So this young man who was the lead uh, uh, investigator, uh, you may have people who, 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 who may not want to see him alive. And to add to you putting his picture out there, uh, that was a bit uh, too much. Uh, for my taste buds, uh, and that is why I, I, I was calling the honorable member out that, look, uh, that thing you did expose this young man to danger, and someone uh, had uh, identified him and taken him out very sadly, unfortunately. Now you think, and you think it's the same that is currently happening with Erastus? Uh, I beg your pardon, who is Erastus? Uh, Erastus Asari, the reporter for 2FM. Kelly, don't ask other question. The matter is sub judice. Sorry, Mr. Chairman, sorry, it's before your committee. Sorry about that, Mr. Chairman. You you I'm just quoting you earlier you said this. You can't fight corruption solely on criminal law. You cannot fight corruption solely through the criminal law, solely by the criminal law. You know the object of the your office or the office you hope to get there by the grace of God if this committee, if Parliament approves of you, that's at 959. The third object, and I quote Mr. Chairman, says to take steps to prevent corruption. So far in all this betting, one thing that I've heard you say is about maybe annual publication of uh, uh, corruption uh, index to show how agencies are doing when it comes to report on corruption and what have you. But you know that we need to do more than that to be able to make real headway. What in specific terms do you think we can do to help deal with this menace. In terms of prevention of corruption, which is actually going to be, when given the nod, my main focus. Uh, if you take, for instance, the context of uh, uh, government agencies, we can strengthen uh, the internal governance systems of all these agencies uh, in order to plug it there. 
and that's why I keep referring to uh, this uh, uh, idea of making corruption very costly and a high-risk venture. Because if um, the, the OSP is coming up with a, a, a risk assessment in respect of all the, the major activities that all the agencies are, are engaged in, if the internal processes have been established in respect of reporting systems, monitoring and evaluation and, and all that, if the internal audit systems of all these agencies are all cooperating with the OSP and the OSP has a keen eye there, then down there we will be blocking uh, the crevices, we will be blocking the, the loopholes to make it tighter. Tom, I just want to find out whether he thinks his office may want to hop or work together with Shrad and other agencies to develop a clear-cut gift policy. Actually, you mean a reward scheme? A gift policy, I mean, you see... Oh, okay, 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 I get it, I get it. Mm, I get it. Yes, indeed, uh, uh, I, I, I keep referring to it. In two, uh, some, some time ago, I even gave a talk uh, I, I presented the paper to uh, officers of charge who have been trained in uh, bribery uh, and, and all that. And I, and I made I made reference uh, to to to, uh, to the gift uh, <laughs> to the gift giving uh, uh, specter that we face. And I have said countless times here that uh, the way our society is structured uh, is such that it is so difficult to. Uh, distinguish the acceptable from the unacceptable in respect of gift giving. So, yes, uh, we would have to come together. We would come together uh, to develop that, that, that policy. And that's an, an integrity plan, an integrity check. Uh, the majority there was here telling me uh, why we keep shifting the goalposts. I mean, let's admit our primaries as parliamentarians our political parties in the campaign for the presidency and parliamentary, the way everybody is on us, and virtually it has now become a norm. I, if we don't really work on this, I don't see how even parliament will have the courage, because virtually you are just dishing out. I, I, the chairman and I will tell you in uh, Pan, Pan Africa, I think Zambia, a member of parliament was deposed from his position for simply giving 50 bucks of cement to a church because they thought that that was something that was beating. And I said, in our country, this is, <laughs> this is, this is a cream that we, we roll it's a ritual. every day. <laughs> but the challenge is that they have a clear-cut policy that says that you cannot do more than, say, maybe 30 bucks, and he did 50, and that became a problem. Around this table, people do a thousand bucks and what have you easily. Primaries, see the kind of things that people share. People put money on the table in the broad daylight. And now which are these disclosures that I should be mindful of. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I've not mentioned anybody's name. <laughs> but it is, it is clear. You see the videos going around. You see the videos going around. You, you, you see, you see in primaries, television, TVs, uh, uh, I think uh, television, fridges, cookers. I mean, if we don't really come out with this policy, we'll, we'll be, uh, we'll, 
will virtually be collapsing our democracy. Oh, no, I, really yeah, wish, I, I couldn't I agree with you. I couldn't agree with you more. And I really, yes, you see, that's the challenge. You see, it's reminding me that the delegates are, are listening to me. And lastly, Mr. Chairman, I know this is a very difficult one, and I don't expect a special prosecutor to be able to really uh, uh, change that much, except maybe in policy formulation and its effort to engage other agencies, the religious leaders, we all begin to truly talk about his, our attitude. If we don't get the attitude changed, people sometimes think that a member of parliament is coming from the space, or the president is coming from some different heavens. Among us, so our attitude is something that we need to change. I wish you well, and I pray that you become successful in the office. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you very much, Chairman. Do I have your indulgence to proceed once again to? Note that we have been assured by Kisia Jabin. But Chairman, corruption is said is legally wrong, morally wrong, economically indecent. When the office of the special prosecutor was announced, subsequent to it, a bill was placed before Parliament. My understanding is for the President to have expressed faith in a neutral, independent special prosecutor beyond the attorney general. Now, hear this words, and I just want your reaction or assurances to it. The Embassy of the United States of America wrote to then Committee on Constitutional, Legal, and Parliamentary Affairs, and Chairman, this were their words. Our foremost recommendation is that the office of the special prosecutor be seen to be free of political influence and interference. Will you be free from political influence and interference? Honorable Chair, I give this committee my full assurance. The other leg is not you, it's probably the president who has failed in that bit. That's not you, but I'm being fair to you. It says, specifically the appointment of the special prosecutor should be subject to a transparent, competitive shortlisting process. So maybe we have failed in that enterprise. I'm not aware that there's been any public advertisement inviting desirous or qualified persons to that office. But as I said, it's the appointing of authority. So the president next time must respect that process. But for your purposes, you are here. But that was the observation of the U.S. Embassy. And he added what we are currently doing, ample scrutiny by parliament. So I appreciate the fact that we are scrutinizing you. And then what role civil society plays. Now, having listened to you with the Honorable Muntaka, when your appointment was announced, the Honorable Kennedy of Japan has some uncharitable words for you. Do you think that it was just payback because of the courageous position you took in respect of Ahmed Swale, or we should believe the things that he said about you? Thank you, Chair. Honorable Chair, I never heard what he supposedly said. Will you be interested in hearing them? 
I don't dwell on those things, Honorable Chair. In summary, you were not fit for the office of special prosecutor, unquote. What would be your reaction to that? That is absolutely wrong, Honorable Chair. So it should be ignored? Totally. All right, Chairman, that brings me to what's your position on review of asset declaration regimes? It, it, it appears that it's just not working for Ghana. You declare assets, you file them before Auditor General until there is an investigation by judicial or quasi-judicial bodies. Nobody knows what is going on. Public officers and income not commensurate to our earnings. We give legitimacy to it even when it is not lawful. What would be your position? Do you subscribe to a review of Ghana's asset declaration regime? Thank you, Chair. I do absolutely uh, subscribe to that. And that will dovetail into what uh, Honorable Muntah What would be your proposal? If you want a revised or a new asset declaration regime, what should the Ghanaian public uh, expect from you in order to deepen public official officer accountability in our country? Thank you, Chair. It will fit in uh, the earlier, much earlier answer I gave in respect to a question that you asked. Uh, are you reasonably able to explain uh, this wealth, a source, as much against your lawful income? That is what the standard that we should apply. And with that, and our attitude of filing these returns, enforcing the filing of these returns, uh, should lead to uh, uh, a progressive outcome in this contest. Because then if you're unable to explain how you came about this, this wealth and the source is concealed, the source is shady, the source is converted, then clearly, you would have uh, questions to answer. Thank you, Chairman. Chairman, I'm holding here fair to the nominee. He would not, since he's not member of parliament, report of the Auditor General on the public accounts of Ghana ministries, departments, and other agencies, MDAs, for the financial year 31st December 2019. And a special prosecutor, assuming you just had a cursory reading, cursory reading of any of the Auditor General report tied to Section 3 uh, of, 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 of your act which gives you ma your mandate, and it reads, tax irregularities, 2,666,000,000. It says uh, cash irregularities, 276,624,000. It reads further contract uh, irregularities, that is 77,000. State money. You are listening to Harun Idris with the minority leader during the vetting of uh, Kisi Jabin as special prosecutor today in parliament. Well, that would be for Eyewitness News. My name is Umaru Sanda Amadou, production by Anna Seidu and Beverly in London, as well as Zoe Abubeidu Technical support from Desmond Nyako. We'll be back tomorrow at 17.30 GM. Stay with us. City News. We speak first.